Hello everyone and welcome to episode 2 of the History Hotline. Today we'll be talking about the Mangrove Nine, it's part 2, it's the protest, the trial, the aftermath and all the events that, you know, followed on from this epic court case that we are about to discuss. So, first and foremost, just a reminder, the Mangrove Restaurant opened by Frank Critchlow in 1968 and... It faced constant raids, police intimidation, you know, in search of sex workers, in search of narcotics, drugs, um, and, you know, in search of anything that could incriminate the mangrove um, and Frank and his staff. They found nothing, they found no drugs, they had found no evidence of prostitution or pimps or anything else they had claimed. Now, just to remind you and to set the scene, that, you know, in 1970 August, when they had decided to protest, of course it was because of the treatment that they had felt um, and witnessed at the Mangrove restaurant. However, just like protests are happening now um, and have happened in the past few months, they a protest never... It doesn't really tend to be about just one issue, one one thing that's happened. You know, whilst we protested for George Floyd, um, for Breonna Taylor, um, and for all the people that were you know fallen victim to police brutality it wasn't that was not the only reason people you know decided to come out of their house in the middle of a pandemic and and protest it was because of the years of systemic racism that they had felt it was because they had felt maybe police brutality in england is just as a problem a big of a problem as it is in america you know whilst police don't have guns here um there are still instances of disproportionate amounts of stop and searches for black and brown people um in comparison to white people people don't just protest because of the thing at hand um and this instant you know at the at the mangrove restaurant it was no different it was a culmination of of pressure of discrimination of prejudice weighing down on the shoulders of these people and they had decided that enough was enough and they stepped out on that day knowing full well that whilst the mangrove was in their mind um and that was the kind of it was a kind of the match it was like they, that was the the catalyst um for the protests it was you know years of, of issues um that had kind of led up to this point and also just to make the point that in 1970 america is you know well into their civil rights movement um britain obviously is in there and this is part of it um the caribbean you know there were there were problems there as well and in africa with um colonialism um and imperialism so it was a global black power struggle um you've got people like marcus garvey um who you know who was born in the um earlier kind of part of the 20th century but his impact um definitely it left a legacy of this idea that all black people of the african diaspora are in this movement together and every fight that you do in your particular country or your particular community for black people that is a step in the in the right direction for black people as a global kind of body of people we don't often think about um, black people now um so much as an african diaspora as kind of a one we think of people um a little bit more separately and as part of maybe one specific community or one specific nationality um but back then i think the black power movement was very prevalent in the uk and i think that was part of you know the reason for the protest as well so on the 9th of august 1970 it was a sunday the crowd gathered um just after lunchtime outside the mangrove restaurant in order to you know begin their protest 
There wasn't a pre-planned concrete route, but they did intend to go past police stations in the area uh, to make their presence known um, and make sure that the police knew that they were protesting against the treatment that they had dished out. They were shouting things like, this is the time, black unity now, hands off us pigs um, and hands off our mangrove. And Barbara Beese, um, one of the women that was um, part of the Mangrove Nine and a protester on the day, she had um, a pig's head on a stick, um, like on a stake, and she was marching with that um, and holding it aloft, you know, during the march. Uh, Darkus Howe, a community rights activist and leader, um, and another one of the Mangrove Nine who was there on the day, he stood on the roof of a car to give a speech, um, and as he spoke, about a dozen police officers apparently appeared from around the corner. Uh, Darkus pointed at them and the crowd started shouting, pigs, pigs, pigs. Um, this was clearly about the police and the protesters wanted to make sure that was known. Um, so as I said, the object of the, de- the demonstration um, was to, to visit every police station in the area. Um, so me not knowing Notting Hill that well, um, they did start, um, I think Nottingdale station was the first station that they, they got to, um, and police had surrounded the building. It was as if they knew that they were going there. They were ready. They were posted up, posted up on the block, uh, waiting for these protesters. Um, the next station they went to was Notting Hill station. Um, and I think it was a similar scene there. Um, and the kind of issue, the issue that we have right now and right here as I try and narrate the events of this protest um, is the fact that there's a lot of contradictory evidence um, and you'd, you'd think you know this is completely normal of course there might be contradictory evidence you know from from the police and the protesters maybe both of them you know are seeing things in a different way um, and would have different stories but no the contradictory statements are from the police officers police officers were saying different things um, their stories did not add up, even though they were all at the same march, um, which is where we start to kind of understand um, the fact that this this protest, this whole trial, this whole situation, it was not as black and, and white <laughs> as um, a protest, you know, that, that ended up in a little bit of violence and went to trial. Um, I think there's a more sinister agenda at play um, in this protest, and we're going to get into that now. In order to create this podcast and to explain about the Mangrove Nine, um, I rely on like archival material, um, and in this case, it was police reports and um, you know eyewitness statements and some of the information that was gleaned from the trial from the protesters and the accused, um, and also um, interviews done many years later because obviously this was 50 years ago um so in between kind of then and now now the fact that you know the mangrove nine is a landmark case um like oral history interviews have been done and conducted with um the mangrove nine and their families um so that is kind of all the information collated together so some of this information is being you know regurgitated or remembered from you know 20 30 40 years on um, and some of it was maybe the days after or months after and so there are discrepancies and everything that I do say in the kind of next few minutes about the actual protest it's none of it can be kind of taken as gospel honest truth because it is taken from a wide range of sources Um, but I'm just going to explain anyway what happened so apparently 
the officers were unsure of where the protesters planned to go. But police logs give minute-by-minute accounts of the march because obviously there were so many police officers there that, you know, they were able to, to really kind of pin down every single minute of this protest. They had enough eyes on the ground. Um, so an officer saw a Volkswagen van and he believed it was loaded with eggs. I'm not sure how he believed that or how he knew that, <laughs> how he knew there were eggs in the van, unless the van was open. Um, but then it would say he saw eggs, but he believed it was loaded with eggs, which could be used by the protesters. So that happened. And most reports say that at Portnell Road, things started to get a bit nasty. That's when things kind of erupted. And this is kind of corroborated by protesters and the police. So I would I would take this as, as somewhat truthful. So around 4.40, the procession stops and within a few minutes, there's serious fighting. It all erupts. It all kicks off. Everything's going on on Portnell Road and on the neighbouring streets. And at that point, officers called for assistance and ambulances. That, again, we can take as fact because that would have been recorded, um, you know, by the time logs that would have said an ambulance was called at so-and-so hours and assistance and backup was called at this time. So that's kind of, you know, something that we can believe. Um, now, this is where it gets a bit... Hmm. He said, she said. So apparently a police officer pulled down a placard from a protester, pinned a guy on the ground, and that's when the trouble started. Somebody else said, oh, well, somebody else, the police. (laughs) They said that protesters were throwing bricks from a builder's skip and then disorder erupted. An elderly woman watching from her window said that the riot started when a bottle was thrown at a policeman and that the police didn't interfere until that point. Another witness said that the misunderstanding was on both sides. Police stopped the procession to let a car cross and he said at that point, you know, really quickly, the protest seemed to lose control um, and things went crazy. At about 4.56, apparently, the protesters headed back to the Mangrove restaurant but scuffles continued for another 20 minutes so 16 minutes after the initial kind of eruption of so-called violence um some protesters headed back to the mangrove restaurant obviously they weren't that far um but there were scuffles now this is where it gets a bit interesting so there is evidence to state on that day the cid special branch were on the march and the special branch are a branch of special police officers they were on the march from the beginning taking pictures and those pictures were used to make the arrests so the police had planted special branch officers within the protesters in plain clothes to take photos of the protesters from the beginning now why would you do that if you assumed that this protest would be a peaceful protest with only a hundred or so protesters protesting police ill treatment in my opinion my my small small personal opinion it's very clear to me that there is something more sinister at play because if you're planting police officers with cameras in a group of protesters to take photos you are clearly expectant and hoping for something to happen that can be photographed because you're not just putting the um, these police officers with their cameras in to get some cute pics it's that was not the motive so personally speaking and you may agree you may not I would say that the fact that police officers were planted and they weren't, you know, in uniform, because if they were in uniform, then everybody would know that they're police officers and they're taking pictures, might want to cover their face, Um, but they were not. They were planted in plain clothes so that they would not arouse suspicion 
and they were taking pictures. Now, it's also made available to the public very much later on. The Home Office commissioned a report from Community Relations Commission and they concluded that contrary to police reports, the violence was not initiated by the marchers, but the police. So, got two reports here that have come out a long time after um, the mangrove protests and the trial and everything to say that there's police officers there taking pictures, hidden, and also that the police initiated the violence on the marchers. So, in my personal opinion, once again, just me, just thinking out loud here, um, the fact that these things coincided and the fact that it was all on camera, a group of black people fighting police officers, being physical, whether you know they started it or not, which they didn't, um, and then... which all all of this eventually ends up you know on newspapers in Yorkshire in Manchester all across the country to me it clearly shows that an agenda to be pushed and that agenda was the fact that the powers that be wanted to paint black people at that time as violent as criminals in order to justify immigration controls that were slowly being brought in in 1968 there was an immigration act passed because a lot of Asians, um, Indians in particular, were arriving in Britain from Kenya and Uganda as British citizens again um, because they feared discrimination from the governments in Kenya and Uganda specifically. Um, So in 1968, um, the British government passed legislation in three days. They passed it as an emergency piece of legislation to control immigration so that only certain people would qualify um, as British citizens, as British citizens, they move the goalposts just like they always do, um, and that was in 1968. So the fact that England is clearly fed up of immigrants, Enoch Powell, um, in the same year, has made his Rivers of Blood speech, where he plays on this kind of idea of white fear, this idea that the country is going to be overrun, your neighbours won't look like you, they won't cook food like you, they won't smell like you, they won't act like you. And it's going to create lots of racial issues and the country's going to be just like America, um, who are obviously fighting a civil rights you know, movement at the time. Um, if you've ever listened to his speech or, or read it, um, you'll, you'll understand the language he used. It was very, it was fear mongering, it was hyperbolic, it was heavily sim- symbolic language um, to highlight this kind of white fear. He says, oh, I was speaking to this lady and she's, she's worried about this. Or I was speaking to this man and he's worried about this. He never kind of uses his own opinions he's very clever about that um it's a horrible speech um but that that happened and that he was supported because his ideas at that time were supported by a lot of british society in 1967 a year before that the national front was formed the far right group group that was responsible for targeting black people beating them up in the streets um that's formed the year before that this anti-immigrant feeling is a very very strong in britain at this time and if you know this country can paint immigrants to be um a negative thing for the country to be the fact that you know black and brown people are criminals they're here to beat up the police they're here to to have you know restaurants that are selling drugs and um this kind of idea that immigrants are a negative thing and that these people have no right to be in britain that is my personal opinion of what was trying to be um to be pushed out and to be put into the media um the fact that there were photographers there ready 
to take pictures of what was about to happen, which the protesters had no intention of it turning violent. Um, I think that that says a lot. Um, This attack was launched and blown out of proportion, and I think it was to justify the treatment of black people. Um, They wanted to justify the kind of countless raids and you know attacks on on the mangrove they wanted to justify controlling immigration and they used state sanctioned violence to do that um they wanted to destroy part of the black community the mangrove they wanted to break it down um and so by locking up kind of the people that were responsible for things like restaurants um, and spaces for communities to come together and protest for better treatment in this country um that this is how they did it um they went they went for the roots they kind of hit at the roots um of this tree of activism we can call it um in order to in order to stop it from growing moving on to the trial um and the charges that were brought you know against the mangrove nine so the charges were inciting a riot all nine uh, defendants were charged with that um affray possess possession of an offensive weapon actual bodily harm to a policeman and grievous bodily harm to a policeman now those charges weren't all um kind of given to all defendants um they were kind of some of them had most of them had like a kind of a sample of all of them um it was interesting to me that Barbara Beast and Althea Lacoint, Althea Jones Lacoint, sorry, the only two women in the Mangrove Nine, um, they were both actually charged with actual bodily harm to a policeman, um, and it's interesting because Barbara Beast, um, as I mentioned before, was the one holding the pig's head, um, and shouting and walking with that, and for her to be charged with you know actual bodily harm to a policeman, um, was quite quite an interesting one to me. Um, so people were not arrested immediately after the protest it was up to nine weeks you know it took nine weeks to arrest some people i think they needed to like develop the photographs that their little um undercover police officers you know had taken and and then find them um so you know they had arrested nine people um in the weeks after the nine people um and it took nine weeks um and it went to magistrates court um in marylebone police station um and the magistrates threw out the charges of inciting a riot. He threw them all out due to lack of evidence because apparently the police evidence was contradictory. Um, 23 pages of police statements were ruled to be inadmissible by the magistrate. A senior officer had st- had said that uh, violence was spontaneous. Um, others claimed that it was um, started by the defendants which we now know was not the case and if if the defendants had started the violence then yes they would have been found guilty or they would have been guilty of inciting a riot but they were not so the magistrates threw out the charges because he said that 23 pages of police statements were inadmissible because they were so contradictory now to me if you have police officers that are all at the same protest all at the same march there's absolutely no reason why any of their statements should be contradictory unless one of them maybe was blind or struggling to see or missed a bit like there's no reason if you're all in the same place you should be telling the same story unless it's obviously not true anyway according to a sunday times report from an early 1971 which is a central point to the police prose- prosecution case um was this idea that the banners and the chants were kill the pigs 
and obviously Barbara Beast had a pig's head um, and you know they were shouting pigs 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 at police officers um, and that was the kind of slogan that was used in America um, during the kind of protests there and the anti-police um, kind of movement and apparently these were taken as words of evidence um, to kind of incite violence onto police officers um, but the magistrate disagreed with that statement. Um, I think it's also important to note that black power from America, um, it was slowly coming into Britain. Um, Malcolm X had visited Britain um, a few years before this. Stokely Carmichael, leader of the Black Panthers, had, had also visited Britain. He'd also been, um, what's the word? He wasn't he wasn't allowed to come back. He wasn't allowed to make his speech and he wasn't allowed to stay. Um, British people were absolutely petrified of black power. I think they, were, they might have even been more afraid of black power than white Americans were. Um, because they didn't really understand it and they didn't really understand you know what what black people had to kind of complain about in a sense um so this magistrate has thrown out these charges um of inciting a riot however the other charges um were brought to the old bailey um and the defendants obviously would not just charge with inciting a riot they were charged with the other things i mentioned before and the charge of riot was reintroduced the High Court overruled the Magistrates Court. The Magistrates threw it out. He said it's not happening. And the High Court brought it back because the prosecution pushed for it and the High Court can overrule a Magistrates Court by British law and no reason is needed for them to do so. So they did it. And the defendants were rearrested on the charge of inciting a riot. So from having the case thrown out to now it's been brought back and it's been taken up by the High Court. So this is a case that obviously would have gone to magistrate's court, but the magistrate said, nah, it's all right. It's not It's not that serious. She didn't do it. And now the High Court has taken it up. And the High Court is obviously, you know, more serious. It's going to carry a higher penalty if you're found guilty in a High Court. Um, I think the magistrate court can only give out a certain sentence. Don't quote me on that. That might be a complete lie. I don't don't know. But it's obviously more serious because it's been taken to a High Court. And this is where I think you can kind of see, like, this strategy to, to make an example of these people and to target and discredit them as leaders. Now, it is quite interesting to note that of the nine people in there, I think pretty much all of them, were big in their community for activism and for movements of black power. Um, Althea Jones-Lacoint and Barbara Beast are Black Panthers, same as Dark as How, they're in the British Black Panther um, movement and they are leaders in it as well. So the kind of, you know, powers that be, they've kind of struck gold. They have got these, you know, big names in the black community. They've got them, they've got them on charges. They can, they can shut them up. They can send them away for as long as they want. All they have to do is prove that they are guilty of these crimes. And don't you think as well, it's interesting for me personally, of the 150 people that were protesting, they managed to pick out, you know, some of the biggest names in the activist community of the 150 people. Now, obviously, Barbara Beast is holding a pig's head and Darkest Howe is standing on cars um, giving speeches. So, you know, they would be easy to pick out. But all of them were not, you know, so so um, vocal in the protests. But it's very interesting that they managed to find these exact people. Um, and Frank Critchlow as well, owner of the restaurant. He's picked up as well. So, the trial one of the longest trials in legal British history. It was nine weeks long. The black community showed up and showed out. They followed them. They supported them. They turned up at court. There was banners of support. They gave legal support. Um, and 
it was a real kind of community effort with this whole process. Obviously, you know, there were nine people being accused, but the black community really got behind them at this point. I would love to go into kind of every single one of the Mangrove Nine and tell you about who they were and what they were doing. Um, but I, I don't want this podcast to be, you know, so, so long. Um, and I do think I will revisit these individuals because, you know, their lives weren't just limited to what they achieved in this kind of mangrove nine situation um there was more to them all as individuals so we might revisit them please let me know if you'd like that um let me know in the comments below but i will tell you about uh barbara ranalthia because um i am interested in you know the history of women especially when it comes to activism because um most leaders within black movements um, black power movements are men the kind of standout names tend to be male um so i'll tell you a little bit about barbara and um, althea um barbara was 20 years old at the time this was happening and althea was 25 um barbara said that you know the atmosphere of the courtroom was she said male pale and stale and it was very intimidating and it was the fact that they were taken to the old bailey um you know where the worst criminals went on trial she said for us to be here it was like we were being told we were up there with the murderers and the rapists for a charge that was thrown out by magistrates um it was it was clearly going to be a show and it was set up to be a show um barbara's 20 years old that's like you know when you think about how young that is to be on trial at the old bailey for something that you didn't even do it's absolutely petrifying um althea jones lacoyne she's 25 years old um she just graduated with a phd in biochemistry from ucl um which is the whole reason she came to england in the first place um she came as a student she's a leading figure in the black panther party um and i should call her i should be calling her dr althea actually excuse me dr althea um and she fought for black women and girls um within the black panther party because um if you know anything about the black panthers um they're they're not really an an anti-sexist movement let's say they're they're very good with the black power um but they forget that you know the patriarchy does not help black women um um, and that's both in america and britain and althea really kind of tried to subvert that um working with black women and black girls um within the black panther party um and the movement um barbara beast at the time she's recently um had a baby um and the baby was um only about one or two years old um and the father is dark as hell uh, the man that was standing on the car during the protest and also accused um, so she was absolutely petrified that, you know, if her and Darkus get sentenced, um, who's going to look after this baby? Um, Barbara grew up in care, in the care system, um, and did not have a good time in that kind of care system and did not want the same thing for her son. Funnily enough, just since we're talking about her son, her son actually ended up um, as um, the president and chief um ceo of island records and he signed amy winehouse and jesse J. and he's now the president of island records in new york um his name is darkest beast um and he's like a really big name in the music industry now um and i kind of mentioned that because he's still alive and well um barbara and dr althea they're still alive as well this history is not an it's not a history of of long long ago this happened 50 years ago that happened in in well, my parents lifetime definitely your grandparents lifetime and the fact that you know these things are so prominent then and and it feels like they are still happening now it it worries me about how little has happened in 50 years but also the fact that this this history is very recent 
Um, and so if we're waiting on, you know, attitudes and mindsets to change, it's not really going to be the case because there are people that are still alive, that were alive then, that still probably hold those attitudes and ideas and are, you know, injecting those into to the younger generations. But yeah, I just thought it was interesting to kind of to bring that to light. Anyway, back to the trial. So we've got nine defendants, seven of them represented by legal counsel. Um, which means they had lawyers that were going to be, you know, representing them in court, in the high court. They had a bit of a struggle to find, you know, adequate lawyers because I think there was one situation, I can't remember with who, um, but he said that he went into a lawyer's office, he explained the situation, the lawyer said, oh, you know what, just just plead guilty to the charges. You'll be, you know, out by five years. You can be back with your wife. Um, There's no need to go through all this trial. Um, and he knew, you know, as an innocent man, that is exactly what he was not going to do and walk straight out of the room without even engaging in conversation with such a ludicrous idea, which don't get me wrong, it's ludicrous when we think about it because we know he's an innocent man. However, a lawyer at the time, knowing the case, knowing the fact that he's black, knowing the fact that he's up against a all-white society in some ways, um, and, and against the police, you know, he obviously advised him in the way he thought fit but thankfully he did not take that advice um two of the defendants decided to defend themselves which is where it gets very juicy and very interesting it was very typical of black panthers in america to defend themselves it had been done before trials in america as you know are always you know they're just they've got a little bit more drama a little bit more edge than than a british trial um which are a little bit more stiff but in america the black panther trials were always full of drama i think it was bobby seal um he was gagged and chained up in a trial by a judge because he kept hurling uh, verbal abuse at the judge and obviously that's absolutely crazy and if you ever look at the the court drawn art of that you'll you'll understand just how kind of disgusting that is to be gagging a human being um in a court of law don't get me wrong this mangrove trial was not was not that dramatic at all however you know they had adopted these tactics um from the best you know from the the best of the best when it came to defending themselves um from crooked police um and institutional racism um so Althea uh, Jones LaCointe and Darkus Howe they were the two that were representing themselves both as I said before members of the Black Panther Party in Britain um so it gave them the ability um, to speak directly to the jury. It was a big political move. It meant that they didn't have to go through barristers um, because a lot of them didn't feel like they could trust them. Um, as I said, barristers said that they should plead guilty in the past, etc., etc. They knew that it wasn't going to be a fair trial. It's a group of black people against the police. It would, it would never, you know, be fair. No one was playing fair at this point, and they knew that. They knew they were already... They'd started off playing dirty, so why would they play fair now? Um, however, they decided that, you know, they were quite hopeful in the idea that maybe if an all-black jury was selected, it would level the playing field, and that is why they um, defended themselves and pushed for um, an all-black jury. Um, they cited, you know, the Magna Carta, which states that you should have a jury of peers... Um, to try you if you are accused in a court of law um, and that for them obviously as black people meant a jury of black people obviously the judge rejected that and said that's not happening you're not having a jury of all black people um, in se- instead um, they had to create a selection criteria for the jury 
um, which is common in, in all trials. There's always a selection criteria, depending on the case. Um, and for this selection criteria, they decided that it would be, um, you know, what do you understand by the term black power? And as I said to you before, British people were very afraid of black power. They didn't know what it meant. Um, and it's probably the reason, main reason for their fear and their prejudice. In total, based on that one question, they rejected 63 potential jurors. And in the end of the trial, once they'd said, in, sorry, not the end of the trial, in the end of the selection process, they ended up with a jury of two black members um, and the rest were white, um, but obviously had satisfied their answer in the question of what do you understand by the term black power? By choosing to represent themselves, um, it obviously meant that they could, you know, manoeuvre a jury that they wanted. But also the idea of black people in Britain in the 1970s defending themselves in a court of law really increased media attention. And this is exactly what, you know, the Black Panthers in America would do. Um, it garners attention, it garners um, an audience and you can push a political message if you have an audience. Um, and so this is exactly what was done. Um, and the courtrooms were packed every single day of the trial. Um, there was a man called uh, Farouk Dundee who um, was a new recruit for the Panthers who came into court and took notes every day and he noted that he said Darkus was very theatrical, showed off like hell. He said whenever Althea spoke you could hear a pin drop in the court. Now this is a packed out courtroom, you've got Darkus you know who's playing up to this um, courtroom etiquette, he's going for it, he's showing off, he's you know he's, he's literally performing he is shining um and Althea is captivating the audience um I say audience I mean the courtroom um and you can literally hear a pin drop in a packed out courtroom um a lot of people really are inspired by the way Darkest House speaks um I am one of those people and um people would flood the courtrooms just to hear him um, and his kind of presentation of himself in the courtroom. He is a very inspiring speaker. If you ever had to have time, just, you know, Google him and the BBC reporter um, and just have a look at that exchange if you want somewhere to start. Um, he's incredible. Um, and, you know, he definitely used the opportunity uh, to perform in the courtroom. The trial went on. It went on and on and on until December 16th, 1971. Um, and remember, this whole story began in 1968 when Frank Critchlow opened his restaurant. I'm sure he didn't think that when he opened his restaurant to sell West Indian food to West Indian people and anyone else that wanted to enjoy, he'd end up, you know, in a court case that went on for nine weeks um, trying to fight for his right to stay out of prison. Um, anyway, all defendants were acquitted of the main charge of incitement to riot happy days five were acquitted of all the charges um however rupert boyce rodan gordon anthony innes and althea jones lacoint received suspended sentences uh, for a selection of lesser offenses and the best part of the trial this is this is this is the moment i've been building up to these two episodes culminate here where i tell you the judge edward clark's closing comments that left a lasting mark on British society forever, he said, what this trial has shown is that there is clearly evidence of racial hatred on both sides. He said what? He said, this trial has shown that there is clearly evidence of racial hatred on both sides. So let's break that down. There's two parts to this. So there's the idea that the defendants have got racial, racial hatred 
towards the police. Well, you know, what can be expected? You've been brutalising them, you've been um, raiding their mangrove restaurant um, in any situation, I'm sure, police or not, there would be hatred towards whoever was doing that to you. Um, Obviously, in this case, it was the police um, and what they represented at the time, which is oppression. But the idea that the police had shown racial hatred, the police, the police that are meant to protect society, the police paid for by taxpayers, the police were fuming. The Metropolitan Police were absolutely fuming. Senior officers tried to get the judge to retract his statement and his comments many times and failed. He obviously, you know, he said, I said what I said. Um, and he was not taking it back. Um, you know, a senior detective wrote about the case and he said all the police officers who gave evidence were at great pains to explain that they felt no personal antagonism towards black people within our community. Um, and I pulled that out because I think it's very important. It speaks on this idea where, you know, there's an incident of clear wrongdoing at the hands of the police. And then they say, yes, but, you know, our police officers aren't racist. They don't feel any personal prop. They have no personal problems with black people or people of colour. But it's clear that even if maybe as an individual officer walking down the street as, you know, as as jo- as John or as James or as Bill or as Harry, they have no um, bias towards black people. When they put on that uniform, something's clearly switching. When they get into a group of several officers and have to police black people, there is clearly a prejudice at play because they would not be treating them in the way that they are. Another, another point to draw out is the fact that, you know, this these um, officers that were questioned directly... They stated that they had personal views against certain individuals that were tried. So they basically said that they <laughs> they had a problem with some of the people, you know, that were on trial. Um, so whilst, you know, they were at one, one point arguing that they felt no personal antagonism towards black people in the community, they had a personal issue with some of the black people in the community. You know, make it make sense, police officers. Now, it would be really easy to kind of wrap this story up here and say that, you know, things changed. The judge said that, you know, there was racial racial hatred. And so as a consequence of that, the police took on adequate training to address their racial bias that they had towards black people. Obviously, this did not happen because, you know, we fast forward to 1999 with the McPherson report um, that, you know, labels the Metropolitan Police institutionally racist in the wake of the Stephen Lawrence murder and the police cover-up after it. Um, The fact that, you know, nothing has changed, nothing had changed in the 27 years post-Mangrove and now where we have disproportionate amounts of stop and searches of of black and brown people in this country um, and a Metropolitan Police Commissioner who doesn't really seem to understand what institutional racism is because she keeps denying it um when it's it's clearly it's clearly a thing there's also a personal cost on each of these people and whilst you know we we see the the mangrove nine now as a representation of people standing up for their rights doing whatever they can to prove their innocence um and stand up for the the black community there is a personal cost um to that and i want to speak on rothwell kentish's story um, it's often forgotten when we talk about the Mangrove Nine, but um, he faced a separate prosecution. He was rearrested um, in October 1970 um, in relation to like the violence on Portmore Road. 
Um, and he was charged with attempted murder of a police officer and he was sentenced to 36 months for assault and also for possession of an offensive weapon. Now, obviously, we're celebrating the fact that the judge has acknowledged that there is, you know, racism at play. Um, but this man is actually faced prison um, for something that he didn't do. So in an interview with his son um, after Rothwell's death um, last year in 2019, um, he said that even on his deathbed um, with dementia, all he spoke about was the second trial. Um, and he, he kept asking the family to find the court papers, even though literally he was on his deathbed and dying. He just wanted those court, court papers. He just wanted to talk about that trial like he couldn't understand it. Um, it's kind of said that he bore the heaviest personal cost of the trial. Um, and the craziest thing about it is the fact that Rothwell Kentish might not have been at the march um, because he was said to have been fixing a car elsewhere in London. It was the fact that he was a community leader and it was assumed that he had to have been there at the march and so was arrested by association, even though he may not have actually even been there on the day. It will be interesting maybe to come back to some of these individuals within the Mangrove Nine and do episodes on them as individuals. Please let me know if you'd like that or if you've had enough of them and you want to learn about some different people, different time periods or, you know, different things. What we have here is in this Mangrove Nine situation, um, the state wanting to make an example out of the mangrove um, and prevent the growth of organised resistance within the black community um, and knock that spirit of rebellion out of them. Unfortunately, it didn't work because of, per, pro, in part, the judge's closing remarks and the fact that, you know, the individuals that were charged and the way they conducted themselves um, in trial, um, it was very difficult for them to do that. Um, they wanted to smash up the roots of an organisation um, before it could take root in the community. Um, black power, black pride was was weaponized and it was perceived to be a threat by the British state and it didn't fall in line with the ideas um, that were being pushed about black people at the time. Um, the mangrove stayed open until 1992. Frank Critchlow unfortunately passed away in 2010. Um, Darkus Howe passed away in 2017 and Rothwell Kentish um, passed away last year. Um, I know that Barbara Beast and Althea Jones of Coin are still alive. Um, I'm not sure about the rest of them. I really did try and find out some information, um, but they're really difficult to to find information about. Um, a lot of their children have kind of taken on the kind of activist role and speak on their behalf sometimes, especially um, with Dark as Hell, um, Frank Richlow and Rothwell Kentish, because obviously they've passed away. But these people aren't... They're not the celebrities you would assume that they should be. They're not the famous names. They're not household names. Before knowing about the Mangrove Nine, I didn't know about these people, um, apart from Dark as Hell, um, just because of his other activist, activist work. But there's, it's really difficult to find information about them because nobody really cared about them after this kind of case was all done and dusted and, and wrapped up. Um, it's only now that we're uncovering these histories um, and kind of bringing their names to life and honouring them in the way that they should have been honoured at the time. Thank you so much for listening. Um, that is all I have to say on the mangrove situation. I don't think there are any more words I have um, that could possibly come out. Um, I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, next episode will be out next week, Monday. I'm not sure what it's going to be about yet, um, but if you have any suggestions, please do let me know um, on Instagram uh, or on Twitter because we have a Twitter page now. 
and thank you so so much for listening i hope you have a beautiful day bye bye